Welcome to Diplomacy, the podcast for communications in mergers and acquisitions, brought to you by Corporate Diplomat. With our guests, we will discuss how the financial, economic, political and social context can actually impact the value created by a transaction. My name is Louis de Schallemer, and I will be your host. Hans-Christian Hergard, welcome to, to Diplomacy. And thank you for joining us today. As Christian, today you are the chairman of Kalida and Bonhams. And throughout your career, you have seen a number of executive and non-executive mandates. You have been an investor. You have been an entrepreneur. What and or who has made the person you're today? Well, first of all, uh, Louis, thank you very much for, for having me and, and congratulations on this initiative, which I think is, is certainly filling a gap in the, in the European theater. So I'm, I'm very happy to, to be here. To your question, obviously, life is a series of moments, right? And, and on, on the private side and, and on the business side, life is a series of leadership moments. So there's obviously many things that has contributed to form who I who I am. If I should pick a couple, I would say that uh, I would go back and say my, my mom had a very big influence. She was a self-taught uh, businesswoman against many odds. And she taught and instilled in our children that success is not measured by what you start, but by what you finish, which, uh, which I sort of think has been a good guiding light for me and what I've done ever since then. And secondly, she, she instilled the importance of integrity, which always has played a, a very important role in, in how I have conducted myself and also who I am today. As a second point that has, I think has formed me a lot was the fact that I lived and worked 10 years in Asia between the age of 30 and between and, and 40. So that's obviously also a period where you are growing, you are ambitious, you want to move forward. And, and spending 10 years in that part of the world has, has formed me a lot in terms of my international and multicultural outlook. I have a great appreciation and respect for both the Chinese and the Japanese culture. Uh, so I think those would be sort of uh, the key points of forming Hans Christian the way he is today. When you look at, at mergers and acquisitions, and we mentioned this around the executive and the non-executive roles, how is M&A different if you're sitting on one side of the table or the other? Well, first and foremost, of course, Louis, we need to think about are we now the acquire or are we being acquired? And that's obviously two, uh, two different uh, situations. But I would say overall, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that there should be a, a huge difference because we are in the same boat, board and, and management. But it's clear, obviously, that, that, that the executive team, the management team, particularly if you are being acquired, will have some concerns and worries about their future career, about the jobs, about their teams, and so on and so forth. And boards are hopefully not. I, I don't hope anybody is sitting on boards because of the fee, but because they think they can contribute something and, and, and therefore hopefully are not worried about how the board will look in the new acquired uh, company. So, so my overall answer would be, I, I, I think we're in the same boat and, and, and one just have to be conscious about the fact that communicating in terms of what is happening for the team in, new, in this new constellation will allay a lot of fears or anxieties. 
You have spent quite some time in your career and in your life in premium and luxury brands. Throughout a transaction, how do you maintain the brand equity? And how important is the brand equity either for the buyer or for the seller? Because you have to, well, you want to maintain the desirability of the brand. How do you do that? Well, well, obviously, uh, the brand equity is the alpha omega, as you say, of, of luxury brands or at, actually many, many brands, right? Because uh, once you turn off the lights at the end of the, the day, I mean, what do you have left? It is very much people and it's the brand equity. So, so protecting uh, that brand equity is, is incredibly uh, important. And that's obviously why making a due diligence on the one you acquire or the one who wants to acquire you is obviously uh, super important. In the luxury or in the premium brand field, it is very dominated by family companies. And therefore, I have basically worked for family companies most of my career because there is this much longer term view. You think we think in generations and not in quarters. So, so the understanding of the history of the company and the families behind those brands have probably been the most important thing to uh, protect during these transactions and then making sure that, that you respect what's going on, that you understand the history of this family or this company or this brand, but at the same time, obviously, that you don't become prisoner of it, right? And because obviously the brand and the company would have to develop further. If we break this even further down into know-how, le savoir-faire, would traditional family businesses would know, would have developed, but even new contemporary businesses have know-how and practices that they would either, if they manufacture something or if they develop or mentally models, if you're a consultant. So how can you address or capture know-how? Have you experienced anything of that or transmit this or keep this or how relevant or assess it? Absolutely. I, I think one of many of these transactions have exactly happened because of the, of, of the merger of know-how. Typically, traditional companies, family companies, luxury companies are typically have a long history. And the definition of luxury or premium is very much about history. It's more much about craftsmanship, about authenticity, a long history. And then you have these typically younger firms, be that private equity or maybe larger luxury groups that comes in with, with the know-how from a technology standpoint, from maybe a supply standpoint, from a digital standpoint, and so on and so forth. And, and those, those things, are, are, I have definitely seen, create some tension, but in a good way, because both parties realize that you need both, right? The, the, the company that basically is stuck in history and tradition and authenticity and has not gone on the way of what is happening is looking for that in their new partnership. And the acquirer obviously knows that, that you are here taking on a brand with a lot of history, with a lot of brand equity, which is incredibly important to protect and preserve. We know this famous saying of the strategy, um, or culture eats strategy for breakfast. How important is strategy? Let's start with strategy. And when does the M&A strategy start? Because you don't just go out there in the market and say, okay, what can I buy unless there is an opportunity or something that comes up on the market? Sometimes that happens as well. But, but if you have an M&A strategy or a growth strategy, how do you establish such a 
mental thinking within, if you want to be on the buyer's side? Well, I, I think, you know, uh, most companies are well served with trying to develop a, an M&A blueprint for themselves, right? And, and uh, I think that, that that goes through a couple of building blocks. Number one, a very thorough self-assessment, finding out what gaps do we need to fill in order to deliver on the strategy or on the scenes or on the objectives that we have set out as a, as a corporation. And then, secondly, obviously, a comprehensive market assessment. You know, where, where do we play? How do we win? And so on and so forth. And uh, I think that to really define that becomes almost a programmatic M&A uh, process, which I think a lot of companies do because they are very clear on these are the gaps that we need to fill. But what is obviously important at the same time is not to deny yourself the opportunistic opportunity that, that, that suddenly presents itself. But, but I think the programmatic M&A um, is, is, is extremely helpful, that you really have defined what is it that I need, why do I need this, where in terms of geography or in terms of business do I need to make a move so I can deliver on the strategy that we set out. And one thing that I have, uh, and I'm very that's very present in what I'm doing right now is also to try and define the boundaries of this process, right? I mean, maybe you have to define the size of the deal that you can actually absorb so that the team doesn't go in all sorts of directions, but, but that you narrow it down uh, and, and define the boundaries of what we want to do. And then to your first part of your question, obviously the, the key thing here for me is very much about culture. When, when Peter Drager said what you quoted there, that culture eats strategy for breakfast, he didn't mean that strategy was not important, but he was basically saying that, that culture, to have a, a culture that is powerful or empowering, is a much quicker route to success. And, and I, I think that is, that, that is very true. So the owner's intent, or the, even the seller's intent, and the buyer's intent is incredibly important to understand. And, and I have seen most things fail because of this lack of cultural integration or understanding or transformation, uh, which I think is, is pivotal. Because again, as I said before, culture is about history, right, basically. And, and you can't microwave the history. I mean, this has been around for a long time. So you need to understand it and in order to manage the future. I think it was the... Uh, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard, who said that uh, you understand your life looking backward, but you live your life looking forward. And I think that is very true in business as well. I mean, you do need to understand the, the past, but don't become a prisoner of it uh, because you have to move forward. In the um, beginning, you said you define success by what you have um, delivered, what you have accomplished. How do you define success in M&A? Is that at the 100 days after integration? Is that when the check has been paid? What is, <laughs> where does M&A end? Or how can you say you have accomplished something? Well, I think the, the, the accomplishment in M&A is, is a few building blocks. But the ultimate, the ultimate finish line for me is a successful integration. And successful integration means cultural compatibility and people feeling an alignment both between the acquirer and the acquirer. I think, and that takes a long time. I mean, that might only be three or five years down the road, but 
The first milestone is obviously very often did we deliver on the synergies that we that we said we would accomplish in six, twelve, or eighteen months, and that synergies both in terms of cost, but also in terms of business development. Right? Did we actually did one plus one actually become three and not just two? I mean, was there really some leverage? So these are clear measurements that I think you have to define upfront, and I think. Most companies, unfortunately, forget to measure this <laughs> one or two years down the road. And, and I think that, um, and probably it's because many, many M&As doesn't actually deliver on these objectives. Uh, and I think there should be an absolute, you know, clear, at least where I'm involved, there's a clear rule that we have to see where did we land compared to what we said we would do one or two years down the road. And I don't think very many do that yet, um, unfortunately. Dan, one of my questions was, have you seen many teams discuss factors of success in the process of a transaction? So either before, during, and you just said afterwards. Why does it disappear that looking at, at those measures? Is it just because it's difficult to assess because it requires a lot of effort actually to measure success? Or is it because success is not only numerical, Because we try to make our lives easy by saying we measure success by numerical aspects, but some of it is not numerical and just needs subjective assessment. I absolutely think you're 100% on point there, yes. Uh, it's very much numerical driven, particularly if you are in a publicly listed company environment and, and it's very numbers driven and then you have to explain to the stock exchange and to the investors every three months what's going on so i think that that is that is much too numerical driven i think also that to your question one of the problems in MA is that if it is a very intense exercise and i think one of your previous guests talked about you know the courage of pulling out of a deal And not many have that because people tend to fall in love with the targets they are onto and, and, and sort of brush aside maybe some of the alarm bells that maybe should make you pull out. So, so I think that that's, that's one of the issue. And, and, and the second piece is also to add to Peter Drucker's who sets culture eat strategy for breakfast. And then I would add, and many people add an incentives eat culture for lunch, right? I mean, I mean, if you have a, an incentive scheme built uh, around, you know, clear targets that has to be accomplished, then, you know, people, unfortunately, that this is how human nature is maybe, become pretty ruthless. And then you actually forget about what were the objective uh, numbers that we needed to achieve or the, or, or the other non-numerical objectives and, and get very focused on what is in it for me at the end of this process. So, so there's a lot of things to, to manage. And that for me is, 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 is cultural transformation. One of the things that I have um, experienced, and, and, and it seems to be the same number every time. I mean, I have been involved now in four companies where it was not so much about a financial transformation, but really a cultural transformation. And what I have seen two years down the road or even 18 months down the road, pretty consistent that about 60% of the people in the company that you acquire are either gone or are in new roles. So basically this means that, that you have an enormous change going on culturally uh, and, and, and new viewpoints and, and so on and so forth that if you don't dig deep and if you don't engage that sort of 
lives its own life. And I, I think it's very important to be conscious of the fact how big actually the people change is in, in these type of situations. You mentioned integrity at the very beginning. What other qualifications would you look for in, in leadership for a transaction? Integrity, number one, but equally important, I think, is transparency. Moving, moving from the black box to the glass box, so to say. Uh, I, I, I think that once you communicate the news, you have to uh, be very, very clear and very transparent and very direct. And first and foremost, do not send mixed messages, right? I mean, it, it, it has to be clear because you have to create comfort for the team and you have to put yourself in the shoes of your of your team, you know, what they are looking for. And that's not, uh, cultural change is a very important piece of it, but, but it's also about the anxiety and, and, and maybe the fear that I talked about in the beginning. So I think that, uh, that this transparency and openness is important. I think once a decision is taken and you communicate that, you cannot debate it because the decision has been taken. But I think it's very important that you allow for some venting some criticism, uh, you know, uh, whatever. I think that you have to have that whole piece firmed up. And, and that's, for me, that is one of the biggest leadership moments for any leader, right? when that news has to be cascaded and, and how you do that and, and how you stand up there in front of them and how you decide, both in terms of time and setting, how you are communicating. How do you make then, and you mentioned this, that within a transaction, You have these different stakeholders, be it your financial community, your investors, be it your employees, customers, sometimes even suppliers, depending on, on the organization. Is it possible to make everybody happy? <laughs> no. No, it's not, Louis. I don't think, I don't think it is. I, I, I do think that you can create win-win situations. And I think that is one of the success criteria for, for, for a successful M&A, right? That, that both the seller and the buyer feel that, that, they, that they won or, or got some very good things out of it. But no, you cannot make everybody happy. And, and, and I think it comes down to mostly where it's difficult is to make everybody happy from a people perspective, right? Because there has to be, as the French say, on peut pas faire un omelette sans cacher les oeufs. I mean, uh, something has to be done to make this recipe going forward. And, and, and um, therefore, there will be uh, people. And I think that's part of why 60% of people are either new or in new roles a few months after such an exercise. You mentioned several times also the importance of the seller. Obviously, if somebody wants to buy, somebody else needs to sell. <laughs> in our <laughs> traditional approach, the seller is usually very low profile and the community is generally very reluctant about a seller and you, we always celebrate the buyer. But actually sometimes it's very smart to sell. How can you manage a sale or an on-sale of one of your businesses simply because you just say it doesn't fit into my strategic portfolio or it makes more sense with somebody else? So there are many good reasons for a company to sell. But how can you articulate that well in the world? I think that's a great question and, and, and I absolutely agree with your observation that, that sellers should be celebrated as well. I, I, 
And I think you can, and you can achieve that, again, coming down to communication, because as we talked about during our discussion on what is an M&A blueprint, I mean, where you sort of define your gaps. When you define your gaps, you also define what you don't want to be. And that naturally leads sometimes to divestiture. So I think if you communicate something where it's very clear why you're making this decision, because it would be good for all stakeholders, because it's not core, it's not, it's not you know, part of, of, of the strategy. There is a strategic logic to what you were saying. It's, it's a compelling case. And, there is a, and I will talk very specifically because it's out in, in the market at, at, at the Kalida group that I chair. We decided two months ago to actually publicize that we have decided to sell one of our largest divisions because we do not see that as an integral part of our core strategy going forward. We also defined that the proceeds from this divestiture would go into two directions. It would not go to dividends to the shareholders. It would go to invest in the other core brands and it would go into acquisitions to then further support what we had defined as core business. And, you know, the the market actually celebrated that. I mean, the, the, the stock price got a, a huge jump over the next few weeks and it's and it's holding obviously now people are excited and waiting for so what are we going to spend the money on and, and when do we sell but I, this was a one example of really trying to be extremely logic in the communication say why we're doing this and where we are going to spend the proceeds so i think it is it is possible but need, more needs to be done uh, as you say because we always focused on the buyers could it be that it's your experience in asia that has learned or taught you how much not to lose face? <laughs> <laughs> that's, obvi that, that, that's obviously a, a key learning, spending time, in, spending time in Asia. But I also reflected on that a lot when I came back to Europe about the 10 years out here. And, and, and we call it something else here, right, in, in, in Europe. But, but I, we call it win-win situation or whatever. But, but, but at the end of the day, it's a little bit or very much so, the same that, you know, a deal has to be beneficial to both sides in order to have a good deal. So I think that that's um, not only Asian, uh, but also European and Anglo-Saxon and Latin American. If you had to give the one piece of advice in M&A to our auditors, what would be that one piece of advice? Transparency. I mean, be incredibly upfront about what you are doing, why you are doing it, and, and, and what it means. I, I think that that creates a lot of respect among all stakeholders, even if all stakeholders might not like it, as we discussed earlier. But, but I think we are not here to be loved necessarily, but we are here to, to be respected for what we are trying to accomplish. So, so I think uh, transparency and integrity goes hand in hand here and, and is a super important tool in the M&A process. In the integration that you mentioned earlier, what would be your your milestones or the, the key elements that you're looking after for successful integration? Obviously, there's all of the hands-on for IT and operations and, and, and all of that clear that are workflows that need to be taken care of. But how do you balance the speed of integration? We often hear that you can't be fast enough But reality shows that most companies are extremely slow or often. How, how do you balance that? Or 
Yeah, I, I, I am. I am very ruthless in in terms of uh, in terms of emphasizing the, the the necessity for speed and pace, um, and and I think that is absolutely uh, critical because you cannot transform forever, and people get tired, and there is an organizational fatigue. We all remember the the movie Lost in Translation. Uh, you could also make one called Lost in Transformation because some of these transformations are taking so long that that uh, that it's counterproductive so i really do think that that speed and pace uh, is, is is incredibly important and and probably define those timelines even stricter than where you're willing to go but i mean really be very focused with the team in the beginning how tight these timelines are but to your wider question uh, yes of course you know the it integration the common erp platforms and these are milestones that we can all you know relate to but for me it's coming back to the to the culture point again because what i see often is so we have two different companies coming together with obviously two different histories and therefore two different cultures i think it's super important in this process to define so what is the culture that we aspire to to have and try and define that it might be the best of both companies or it might be whatever but but i think it is important it comes also down to when 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 people said they hire people for cultural fits i'm always a little bit sort of reluctant to yes yes that's right i think is it the culture that we have we are hiring for or is it is it the culture we want to have that we are hiring for and i think that that is the same in in an mna i think that that when two companies come together you have to try and, and 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 define what is it the culture we aspire to and that's that is also something that is very important to measure and take stock of and that would be a big success criteria for me that's obviously further down the road that's maybe two or three years down the road but with some clear you know milestones uh, along the way so when we have in, in some bigger companies where there's sort of professional head of integration that's often financial IT business units and whatever there needs to be a cultural dimension as well I think it's usually what I what I tend to say is that in MNA you you start with the end <laughs> exactly absolutely you need to know where where you want to go right <laughs> exactly Hans Christian what I take from from our conversation is basically the, the blueprint that you need to have a, a structure a line on, on where you want the book to be written. Then you see how many pages you need to write the book and the less pages, if I understand you well, the better. But <laughs> well, the faster they are written, the better. Right. But, but, but using a blueprint to give a clear structure on the process, on, on starting the assessment, on having a growth strategy, on having an, a vision on the integration and, and where you want to end up. That's step one. And the second one, which I take away is that once you have defined as a company, as a board, as an executive team, this blueprint, be transparent and open about it so that your stakeholders can buy in, understand, criticize, but at least they can follow why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, that's a very good summary. I agree. What would you want to add on that one as a final word, Hans Christian? Well, I, I, I think that in all of this, obviously, 
one have to balance also the strategic imperatives versus the operating necessities, right? I mean, um, we can all have grandiose plans and this we are going to achieve two years from now or three years from now, but we all know the reality is we do have some operating necessities. There are shareholders and stakeholders who expect returns of what we're doing on an ongoing basis and and, 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 and rather swiftly if it's an M&A. So, so this balancing of of the strategic imperatives is on the one hand super important to define as as as, as you just said, but the operating necessities is is obviously super important. I think it was Winston Churchill who said, "The strategy is great, but it's helpful sometimes to look at the results." Right. So uh, I, I think that that's that's what I would like to to add that we need to obviously be realistic that it's not just a PowerPoint and philosophical game, but but there has to be something delivered at the end of the day. Excellent. Thank you, Hans Christian. Thank you for joining us and um, hope to see you soon in Paris or somewhere else in the digital world for a coffee. <laughs> yes, exactly. Super. Thanks, Louis, for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Diplomacy. Please explore our website www.corporate-diplomat.com or our LinkedIn page. I hope you have enjoyed. Feel free to subscribe and hit the follow button. Have a great day.